we're, we're dealing with what I, what I would call hot topics, and I want to address them from a biblical perspective because it's so easy. And some of you are in different journeys. Some of you may not even consider yourself a Christ follower yet, and I'm thrilled that you're here. Uh, because one of the things that I believe is my responsibility, it's not to brainwash you, but it is to help shape your thinking in a biblical worldview and not just to think like everybody else. Because there is a cultural mindset that we have to deal with with so many different topics. And so today is we're going to deal with another one of those. And I've appreciated the comments that I've heard from so many of you that have emailed or shared your heart or told me how uh, this has opened up some wonderful conversations. And I trust that today will as well. Uh, and this will probably be one of those talks that I could probably get some wonderful feedback on as well as uh, pushback. And that's all right. But I, uh, the, the foundation is simply this. Jesus is our example. He's my example that we would come and we would teach and we would speak and we would deal with issues in grace and truth. That, that we bookend all that we do with that. See, the, the, the attitude that I always want our church to have is that, is that we have this grace that allows us to see each subject and each person through the lens of compassion. Now listen, hear me, this is important because I, I, I believe in the message of grace so much. But Sometimes we, we, we can misinterpret that to think that we become so open-minded that our brains are going to really fall out. And we don't have a sense of conviction. We don't have a sense of, of, of right and wrong. And we don't challenge people in a loving, Christ-honoring, God-gracious way to move forward in their faith and to challenge them in areas of sin. And that's wrong. You, you, you almost become accompaniment to it. And so that's why I take on these subjects every decade or so. But we cannot neglect the truth. But hear me, we will not condemn the hurting. And many of the people that come to this church have been hurt by religious attitudes and actions. But I want you to know we all stand on equal ground. And um, there's very few people in this room, actually none that I know of, that can have a smugness of self-righteousness that could stand up here and kind of talk down to you. And so I hope you never pick that up from me because I'm surely not trying to talk down to you. But I want to help shape your thinking and your mind to become more like Jesus in all that we do. So today I'm not here. This is another one of those talks where I could, if I wanted to frame it in, in a certain way, I could get lots of amens and oh yeahs and keep preaching. But I'm not here. I, I, I don't do war against the culture, okay? That's just not, not what I do. I don't do war against the culture. I'm not going to rage against the machine. And um, do I believe that sexuality in our culture is highly exploited? Yes. Is it anything new? Absolutely not. You know, sometimes people think that, oh, we just keep going down. I don't, I don't know that we really go down. I don't think we're any worse than they were in the Grecian Roman times. I just think it's more accessible and it's in our face more. And we've seen that proliferation of expression in our life. And so we, we think it's worse. But I think it's always been this way. It's just, it's just so much more accessible to us. Now, I want to just a couple of opening comments is that Sex was God's idea. He created it. God made it good. See, the idea that sex could be inherently bad doesn't come from the Bible. It, it, it comes from an ancient uh, group called the Gnostics, and it kind of worked its way into this thought, and it was really a, uh, a, a teaching that the early church had to deal with, and you'll see it in 1 John. 
but it's called Gnosticism. See, the Gnostics taught that the spirit of a person was good and our bodies were bad, so sex and all of these other things just become a matter of bodily function. But the Bible says it's our spirit that's bad and needs to be regenerated, and our body is basically amoral. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just God created it. So they got that backwards, because what it did is it gave them this ability to be able to to eat, drink, and be merry, to have a party spirit, because whatever you did with your body didn't matter. I mean, it was just nothing. But see, God always wants us to regenerate, wants our spirit to be regenerated and, and and to be touched by his spirit. Genesis 1.31 says this, God saw all that he made and it was good. It was very good. All that God made, his finished work, he called his whole creation good. He was dazzled. He was overcome. He loved the handiwork of what he did. And Christianity, because of that, espouses a much higher view of sexuality than most other religions. And what I would say, a higher view, a balanced view. Because there's a lot of, you know, they become, you know, these people that they, um, even the Gnostics, they would go from one extreme to eat, drink, and be merry to, you know, don't touch, don't, don't, you know, sex was bad. And there's religions that do that today. I think if we understand God's heart, we will see that it is a wonderful, gracious gift to us. So I want to just, a couple of the Genesis, the beginnings of sexuality, we see it in Genesis chapter 2, verses 9, uh, 9 through 15. Where God, he creates Adam and Eve and he brings them together and he says, I want you to leave. I want you to leave all of these other competing loves. Uh, the man leaves of mother and father and all of these things, relationships and work and friends and all of these things that could ever compete with love and, and a relationship with his wife. Now, three things I believe that, this, that, that the scripture is very clear on when it comes to sexuality. Number one, it is for procreation. We understand that. Genesis 1.28 says, be fruitful and increase in number. In other words, God tells Adam and Eve, make love a lot. It was his idea, it was his plan, it was his way of repopulating and keeping the, the species going. So it's a good thing. Smile at me and say that's a good thing. Okay? All of a sudden you got really serious. So it's for procreation. It's also for recreation. Not recreational, but it's for recreation. What do you mean? Well, if you read Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, it says these wonderful things about Solomon is talking to his son. And he says, listen, bring your wife, bring her breasts, bring, bring her body close to her, drink of her. It's very kind of, it's, it's kind of R. If you read the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, it's also rated R, not for raunchy, but for very romantic and, 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 and sometimes we just, we blush at that. And, and, and God is, listen, God is not embarrassed by this. He created. And he says, I want this to be, I want you to have fun in marriage. See, people who believe God is a prude or a cosmic buzzkill or that Christians are against us, not at all. I believe that we should have the strongest expressions of intimacy of anybody else because the God that we serve is the one that, that created it. And then he set it up for us. But there is a problem because if you pursue pleasure for its own sake, and especially in this area of sexuality, two things happen. First, it disappears over time, the pleasure part of it. Philosophers call this the hedonistic paradox. It's, you know, you just got to always have more and pretty soon it, it, there's a diminishing return. 
So you've got to make sure you keep it in perspective while you're enjoying it. Secondly, it, it can steer you if you just see sex as this recreational thing outside of marriage. It can steer you down wrong paths because pleasure can result from doing the wrong thing as well as doing the right thing. But if it becomes an end to itself, it will lead you down wrong paths. And that's why we see so many people get into difficulties with this. So it's for procreation. When Adam, listen, when Adam first gazed upon his new companion, you know she was a 10 in every way. She was perfect. So was he. Could you imagine? I mean, we've seen some really beautiful men and women, but could you imagine seeing the original 10s? And, and he looks at her, and he goes, Whoa, man, this is... This is this is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But while casual sex is widely accepted today, the Bible is clear that it is to be recreationally experienced and enjoyed in the bonds of marriage. And the third thing, it's only for procreation, recreation, but also for unification. See, the world doesn't understand that while physically, physical intimacy is procreation and recreation. It is primarily designed for unification. It's where two souls become one. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. See, to be united, it literally means to be glued together. So when two people come together in this intimate activity, they do it physically, but it also unites them. The, the literal picture there in the scriptures is like a, it's like you're, you're glued together, you're bonded together physically, emotionally, at the soul level and spiritually. See, remember, we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct personalities of the triune God, but they're so enmeshed that it says literally they're one. You and I, we're made body, soul, and spirit See, we're made in the image of God, and this is going to become a big thing to understand the place that sexuality plays and why God sets it up the way that he does. Because our oneness, our, our triune body, our tripartite personage is so connected at all of these levels. But see, sometimes we just want to diminish it and leave it at the physical level. So I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 so that uh, we get into the New Testament part of what, what is, what is, what is what's the Apostle Paul, through the revelation of God's Spirit, want to teach us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You have to understand that, that the church at Corinth was a mess. It was a messy, messy church. Uh, they had more problems than any church in the New Testament. And so Paul is writing this first letter to correct so many things. And one of them is the way that they saw sexuality. And Corinth would have been one of those churches that they just basically said anything goes. Oh, you love Jesus? Okay, live whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Just do what you want. And so Paul is writing them because it was a great church. Scripture really says that they, 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 they lacked in no good gifts. So Paul now has got to write to him and he says, listen. I've got to set some things in order for you because this is going to affect you spiritually, emotionally, physically, and in the context of the body. So it says in verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So Paul is saying, listen, I am a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. He says this to you. If anybody, if, we, if there's any people in the world that should be the most free, it's you and me. 
We're not, we're not bound by all these rules. We're bound by the commands from God's heart that come from his, his love. And so in, in, he sets up these, what I call, always call guardrails of grace. And when we live in them, it's the greatest freedom. See, everybody thinks that God puts us on these railroad tracks. And it's like, you know, we're just these automatons and we can't go anywhere. No, he says, here's these guardrails of grace. I want you to live into them because I want you to experience freedom in its fullest. But freedom that will protect you from careening over the edge. He says, well, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. <coughs> Excuse me, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's pretty deep weeds there. I mean, you're thinking, wow, this body isn't mine. It's, it's really meant to glorify Jesus with it. And if, and if you want something that will just kind of slack the slack out of your sexual sails, listen, this is one of them. Because whatever you, when, when, you, when, you are, when you are involved, this is, you're bringing Jesus into this relationship. Now, I know some of you think, well, that's kind of different. But, but Jesus, remember, don't forget, he's everywhere. Okay? Okay, I'll, then I won't go into that anymore. Eh? Now, well, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ myself and unite them with a prod? Never! That's probably what they were doing. They don't know for sure. They used to have back in that day. Like I said, we're, not any, we're no worse than anybody else. They used to have worship services in um, the Temple of Aphrodite where they would go and they would, part of their, their worship expression would be hanging out with prostitutes. And he says, never, you can't do that. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. So he's literally saying the same thing that happens with, the, with, with, your, with your spouse when you two become one. You're doing the same thing with the prostitute. There's no difference. There's no distinction. That's the, the mystery. That's the power of our sexuality of becoming one with another person. For the wisdom of this world, whoops, 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 my page turned. So do you not know that he unites himself with a prostitute? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. So then he says very quickly, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Now get this, all other sins a man commits are outside of his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. What I want you to see is that the first thing is, is, is pretty simple. It's that sexuality is always more than physical. See, it's amazing how few how a few moments of sexual gratification has the power to make really powerful people, politicians, pastors, world, university, world presidents, university presidents, pro athletes, CEOs, simply trash their reputation, ditch their marriages, careen their careers. I mean, the smartest guys and women in the world begin to act, you know, like SpongeBob, they act like, with an IQ like SpongeBob. 
You know what I mean? And it's just for a few minutes of gratification. But that's the power of what we're talking about here. We say, well, or some may say, well, why, why, why make such a big deal about it? It's just a physical act. If it was loved ones, if it was just a physical act, would we really use a bunch of loaded terms around it like betrayal, abuse, sexual immorality? Why would we use such moral language around just a physical act? We are not just body parts with nerve endings with biological urges, although it's all part of that. But if it was just physical, then why do we have these other feelings of that this, this, this intimate act has the power to create longing, desire, folly, regret, shame, remorse, like hardly anything else that we do on this earth? Physical intimacy, sexuality is not just a physical act. It, it, it does involve our body parts. But the reason it is so explosively powerful is because we're dealing with something that involves the human body, soul, and spirit. You know, you know what your soul is? And I, some of what I'm going to share today is coming. I'm do, going through a book by John Ortberg that's really good about the soul. And uh, just giving him some attribution for this. But our soul is that inner person, your body. That's pretty easy to tell. Your spirit's what needs to be regenerated by God's spirit. It's what lives in eternity. But our soul will probably be there as well because our soul is our emotional being. That's where you feel everything. And it's probably the most neglected part of those three. Some of us take really good care of our bodies. Some of us take really good care of our spirits. But oftentimes, we don't know what to do with our soul. But it's our soul. That's the thing that gets hurt. That's the thing that gets damaged. And that's what, when God brings two people together, not only in the physical becoming one, but it's the soul that becomes united. And this soul is so much more connected to all of our body, our spirit, and our body than we ever really could imagine or understand. And that's why it's so important to understand when we get into this illicit sexuality to understand the ways that it really begins to affect us. So you'll see through the creation narrative, Genesis 1 and 2. God himself exists in the Trinity. We alluded to that. The Father, Son, the Spirit. They're three persons, yet they're in this perfect unity and oneness, perfect community. God loves this idea of community. And that's one of the reasons why is our church, that because of this triune understanding of God, we have begun to really press forth, whether it's through the tables or through growth groups, that we believe nobody is an island unto himself, Romans 14. But God calls us to be in community. Why? Because he is his community. He wasn't in community. Literally, the triune God, the trinity of God is perfect community. And I have to understand, so there's this close connection between the fact that we are made in his image and you and I were made male and female. See, there's the distinct triune God, but that we understand there's the, the distinctive understanding of who we are as male and female. So God says, what I want to do, because I'm making you in my image, I want you to experience the same kind of oneness when you come together in marriage. You're complete. You're united. You're submitted to one another. And so two different persons can still have this capacity for oneness because we're created in the image of the Trinity. 
Now notice, God, it says in Genesis 1, it says that he creates man and he says, it is, everything was good. It is good. And then all of a sudden he goes, but it's not good. Well, what wasn't good? That man was created alone. So what does God do? He calls Adam over. He says, listen, I want you to, uh, I want to just take you through this, Adam. I want you to start naming the animals. So can you imagine, he has all these animals coming by and, you know, and I, you know, it's, it's amazing how uh, smart Adam must have been, you know, to give them all these names, you know, giraffe, kangaroo, elephant, and, you know, orangutan, and, um, you know, whatever he said, however he put it in, in, in that original perfect language. But Adam notices something as he's naming these animals. Guess what? They all have dates. You know, they're, they're going by and, 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 and then they got their dates. And, and, and then he realizes they're different from me. They can't take away from my aloneness. So after God really reveals this to Adam, what does he do? He puts him down and he creates woman, Eve. Now imagine Adam waking up. Yeah. <laughs> This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. And he experiences delight. And that's the first thing he noticed is the physical, physicality, probably the distinctives, but he also realized that somehow she came from him. And while there's some sameness, there's, there's, there's some definite distinctives. Now get it. See, they're going to be able to experience oneness that's expressed through their bodies. But soon as they're doing that, uh, their, their souls are going to be knit together because, as the writer says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. There's a soul connection that beyond the physical that they're going to experience together. One flesh was the way that a lot of the Hebrew writers uh, would talk about or speak of sexual intimacy. It's the idea of when a man and woman become sexually intimate. They're enacting with their bodies the spiritual longings and desires. But then there begins to be this connection of oneness and soul where they're literally becoming made again, experiencing the image of God. Now hear me. Casual sex cannot achieve the oneness that God intended. In marriage, we are bound together. The two come together, but when we have sex outside of marriage, we hurt ourselves and others. 1 Corinthians 6.16 6, says there's, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as it is a physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two shall become one. That's from the message. And that really just gives it such a powerful understanding of that it's so much more than just two people coming together and slamming bodies and then you move on. See, that's why, can I just hear me? And, this, and I hope that some of you uh, parents in here are taking some notes because these are going to be some important things to talk to your kids about. And some of you go, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Absolutely. You have to. You owe it to them. To help them understand the beauty of this thing. Because see, there's so many people that get hurt. There is, there is listen, I don't, care what the, I don't care what anybody tells you. There is nothing that is really safe about sex outside of marriage. There is no such thing as safe sex. You know why? Because no one has ever made a condom that can protect your heart. 
And, and, and sometimes that's the problem with so many people is they forget that there is an emotional, there is a deep soul connection that God wants. So it's always more than physical. And secondly, sexual intimacy is meant to create connection. See, all at the fall, when, when, when the fall came, when man sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, it, it really began to be kind of this cutting off and, and where they begin to be alone, they begin to run, they begin to be a hide. And, and so they, they begin to get this ex- expression of aloneness and experience what it meant to be alone without God. Because remember, God came and they run and they were hiding. And, and a lot of people, I believe, they, they, they engage in sex outside of marriage. That's not because they want to be promiscuous. It's not always that you know, they want to get a notch in their belt. It's because they're alone. And they just get really lonely because of this, uh, this God vacuum sometimes in our lives. And they have this voice inside that's saying, I was, I was made for connection. Man, I was, I was made for love. And, and, and there's very seldom, and I, I, I so respect our singles, but I, I, so often when I hear singles talk and we get a little bit past just the stuff, you know, you know what they'll say? This is the words I hear the most. I, I just look forward to the time I have someone to share my life with. And, and, and that is really inbred, inborn in most of us. Why? Well, because that's how the Trinity is. They're a community of three. There's an expression and a sharing of divine life. We were made that way. And because such a, sex is such a powerful experience, people begin to mistakenly think that it will take away their loneliness. Maybe for a few minutes. Maybe it'll distract for a while. Maybe through the night. But don't be deceived, loved ones. It's more than just a physical connection. It's a spiritual experience. And whether we believe it or acknowledge it or not, Paul says this, that this union is a mystery. God has designed it this way so that two souls can experience this oneness and really touch a soul. That's why some people can be connected for so long because they don't, even in marriage, they don't just have sex, but there's this, there's this, Deepening, there's this soul connection that goes beyond just the activity that is, quote, legal. It's because they really understand. They bring something else to it. But see, that's why people also chase after and, and they pay such a high price. When people engage in sex outside of God's design, outside of the permanent and the exclusive commitment of marriage, it does something destructive to the soul. Did you know that literally you... There's an old saying when I was in high school. It's kind of crass. People would say, oh, yeah, I got a piece of her. Yeah, I got a piece of him. And it was kind of just a crass way of saying you hit on him and, you know, you, you did the, the dirty dance, so to speak. And, 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 and what people don't realize how true that is. Every time you sleep with somebody, you start to give away a little piece of your soul, of yourself. It's a little piece here. It's a little piece there. It may feel good for the moment, but it eventually begins to feel somewhat empty and hollow when you talk to people who have lived this way for the long term. They don't feel whole anymore. 
Some begin to understand and experience these feelings of guilt and remorse and regret and betrayal and abandonment. Because they just feel like, you know what, I've kind of given myself up for a pretty low price. Do any of you remember Christmas Story? It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And remember the little scene, the double dog, triple dog, Daria? <laughs> they're outside in the schoolyard. It's a cold, cold day, and there's the flagpole, and they're all gathered around, and they're saying, listen, that's what I want you to do. I want you to I double dog dare you. No, I triple dog dare you. And you couldn't back down from that. And they said, okay, get your tongue wet. And then you stick your tongue on that pole. So we see that kid. What do we do? You see his tongue, it grows by about five inches, you know. Well, the truth of that is, is that's a powerful picture of what it talks about. When the scripture says, be united in marriage. The two come together. Probably the greatest picture of your soul is when you are with somebody and you extract yourself from them. Is that right there? If you could picture yourself sticking your tongue on that pole and then walk in and letting it sit and letting it freeze and then walk away. You leave a little piece of your tongue. Now think of yourself. You know, think of, no, that's true. Yeah. But, but, that, but, but hear me. Listen, that's physical. That hurts like crazy. But what's more important is your soul. You don't feel it right away. Sometimes we do. Now imagine doing that 10, 15, 20, 30, 100 times. How long is your tongue going to last? Pretty soon there's going to be irreparable damage that only by the grace of God that he comes and could do some kind of major surgery on you. And I want you to see that picture because that's where we live, loved ones. That's why you see people after so many years, they just become a hollow shell of themselves. People say it's just sex. Hook up with whoever, whenever, and walk away. Some probably can. Some of us probably have. But never forget, you've lost a part of yourself in doing it and just a little bit of wholeness. And so for some, we look in the mirror and we begin to just kind of see a little bit of emptiness, a nagging sense of I'm not whole because there's so many pieces here, there, and everywhere. That's why Paul says very clearly, he says, your body is not meant for sexual immorality because it isn't just your body that becomes engaged. It ultimately becomes your soul. It's designed by God, and there's this close connection between physical, spiritual, emotional intimacy of the soul that God brings together. And that's part of what makes sexuality so wonderful and yet so powerfully destructive when misused. Our body was being made for God's purposes that go beyond our pleasures, even though that's part of it. Now, there's some... This is especially true of teens, but I hear it more and more with Christians. And I just, uh, Cam was telling me this morning that one of the students from, his, from a sixth grade class in our schools where they teach sex education came and gave him a whole, did an interview with him about uh, sex. And one of the first, one of the questions was, is how old should I be before I start having sex? Well, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? How old? Is, is that what, is that it? Is, is, is that what's promoted? Well, here, listen, it's safe to start having sex when you're 18 or 16. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's very sad to me. Because it's not about an age. It's about, it's about a vow. So they're doing these interviews. When's it safe to have sex? 
The question is, what is the purpose for having sex? We teach our kids. What is the purpose? Maybe if you're new, maybe it's your first Sunday here. I welcome you and thanks for coming. And, um, and you're, listen, I, and, and maybe you're thinking, boy, this guy's really a prude. And uh, that's all right, because I've been called that by a number of people. Um, and uh, not my wife, but by a number of people. And uh, because when I ta- I've talked on this a lot in different places over the years, especially when I was a youth pastor. And, and I really, I kind of feel today like a father, you know, because I'm kind of, you know, I got the white hair now, so I can I kind of talk to you as a father. Because I, I, listen, I, I do so much, count- I've done so much counseling on this stuff. See, you don't necessarily see the ravages of what takes place. And we have Christians today, and it's especially true of our teen culture that they begin to believe now that oral sex or other forms of sex is the answer, and it really isn't premarital, isn't really even sex. I mean, you know, we had a president that made the front page of this kind of stuff. But Christians, Christ followers, don't be duped into this line of thinking that turns sexual immorality into a, well, at least I wasn't that immoral or I was safe in doing it. Don't congratulate yourself for a second or third level sense of discipleship. Give God your best. See, the issue starts with oneness. And, and I don't mean to be crude or crass, but all of those things are inclusive of becoming one as much as intercourse is. Now hear me, if you're married, I'm not saying anything about this. I, I really believe this. Whatever you want to do in your bedroom as a married couple and you both enjoy, do it. I don't care. I, I'm not here to talk about that. I just, whatever you enjoy, enjoy. But don't, if you're a single or, or maybe you're married and you, you know, you're kind of have that possibility of ever going and don't ever think that doing other things besides full-on sexual intercourse is like some kind of free pass and you're not having sex. Because it's still becoming one, and it's still part of soul attachment. So Paul then says, flee sexual immorality. And, and, and I want you to see this, that sexual immorality always has negative consequences. People can ignore what the Bible says about sexuality. I, you know, I don't argue with people anymore. It doesn't do any good. But there's always consequences. You know that. You know, with any part of your life, if you're disobedient, if you're disobedient work or on the road, there's just, you, you got to pay. And I've been around long and I've done enough counseling to see that where this issue has brought such difficulty to people's lives, they've been compromised by actions of their own will or where they were exploited by the actions of others. You see people caught up in this web over time. And they begin to literally see themselves and feel like I'm just loose change. That's why we've got to come back to what the scripture says here. We've been bought with a price. The blood of Christ. Now hear me. Sex sins aren't hard to forgive, but I do believe they're more damaging to this person at a personal soul level. Because Paul seems to make this distinction of saying, listen, everything else you do, it's out there. But these sex things, man, you, you, you do them to your soul. You're doing them to yourself. And obviously against the Lord. 
The essence of sin, listen, the essence of sin general diminishes human potential and the possibilities for what God has for us. God's against sin, period. Not because he's there to confront us at our highest points of satisfaction and longings or to stop us because he's afraid we're going to get too much fun out of it. He does it because, well, like I said earlier, he wants to establish these guardrails of grace. I want you to live within the guardrails. I'm, I'm the creator of life. I'm the creator of your life. And I want you to understand I have the best interests for you. How many people have I talked to in the counseling office? That 10, 12, 15, 5, you name it, struggle sometimes in their sexual orientation with their spouse because of their past. Because they just can't, they, they hear a talk like this and it kind of bubbles everything to the surface again. And they feel some of this guilt that Jesus has forgiven but they still carry it. Can I tell you what I believe that is? It's a soul damage. It's those pieces that they just left. See, sexual passion awakens our deepest passions, which are always going to be susceptible to our deepest wounds and our potential for our greatest hurts. Uh, just, just read Dear Abby, and you'll see all the teens and the adults that write in and talk about the brokenness and betrayal. Working through the deep pain of being used and abused. Because see, what happens, loved ones, is the seducer becomes jaded and hardened and insensitive while the seduced feels violated, scarred, and abandoned when it's all over. And you see it maybe through the passing of years. I, I see singles that... Uh, they, they might find themselves unmarried and there begins to be this sense to really not stay counterculture but go along with the culture. And they say, I've got I to compromise my sexual fidelity. Even as a Christ follower, I can't accept these terms that Jesus has set up because I don't know if I'll ever get married. So how often do I talk to them or find that, that they get emotionally involved with somebody and they begin to think that by giving in and giving themselves up, this will secure a relationship and ultimately bring true love. And hear me, you, some of you can sit here and say, well, it did happen with me. Okay, good. I applaud that. That's fine. That, that can happen. I agree. But you don't see the collateral damage in the, in the people that it doesn't work for. Because so many are left in the wake of brokenness and the cascade of emotional pain wondering, what happened, or why did I do that again? Why did I do that again? That's why it's so important that you teach your kids, your teenagers, and I say this to singles, get your faith out there out front. Get your faith out there out front. Because if you don't, Pretty soon you'll make decisions that allow you to compromise yourself. And then by the time you're ready to speak about Christ, you have compromised your faith and you'll be too embarrassed to do it. You won't want to bring him to church. You won't want to talk about Jesus because you'll feel like a hypocrite. And so you'll just keep going down that path. So see, everyone's confronted with a choice. 
Will I honor God's design for sexuality? Will I reserve the gift for marriage? Will I make whatever changes I need to make to get in harmony with God's intent? I know this kinds of, I mean, it stirs up a lot of thoughts and, and feelings and even for some questions. And I honor those. I think they're good. You know one of the biggest comments I get, though, don't you? I get it from couples who say, well, you know, I mean, that marriage is just a piece of paper. It's no big deal. Why do I got to wait till I'm married? It's just a piece of paper. I mean, we can love ourselves. We can just do this between God and us, and everything's good. I've actually had people come and ask me to do civil ceremonies for them. What's the big deal? Well, let me tell you what the big deal is, first of all. First of all, you've got to be consistent in Scripture. Uh, Romans 14 says that we're to be submitted to the government. Okay, our government generally recognizes the legality of marriage through a ceremony and a uh, piece of paper. Well, what's the big deal about the paper? I mean, you know, uh, well, let's argue this maybe from a couple of other contexts. Let's say you're in management. And at the end of this month, at the end of February, today's February 1st, at the end of this month, don't pay your employees. And when they come in and complain about not getting paid, what's the big deal about a paycheck? It's just a piece of paper. <laughs> I mean, we can, we, can, we can do this thing without the, you know, the paper majig check thing. See how that goes over. Maybe you're in education. Wait till commencement day when the grads want to walk across the stage. Yeah, don't give them a degree. When they come up afterwards, just complain. Say, man, where's, where's my degree to put on the wall? Just say, diploma, diploma. Just don't worry about it. It's a piece of paper. My report card. Ah, it's no big deal. It's a piece of paper. Or how about this? Maybe you, anybody here ever received a traffic ticket in your life driving? Okay, let's just say the next time that nice, friendly police officer pulls you over, gives you a ticket, look at him and smile and rip it up and just go, officer, it's just a piece of paper. What are we worried about? <laughs> well, hear me. Marriage is more than a piece of paper. It's a commitment of body, soul, spirit. It's a promissory note. It's a vow. And when that vow is authentically offered, it's the most solemn act of self-giving. It's the best way that we are humanly capable to say, here's a promise. And this promise is going to help bring oneness to our lives. And listen, loved ones, there's not one of us in this room that wouldn't say that's what our community needs. In this unstable, chaotic, directionless, compromised world, we need people to say, you can count on me. It makes families possible. It gives children strength and security. It makes citizenry and a country strong. See, God's dream and plan for oneness in this shaky, compromised world is that through the church, people begin to see, now there's people that are committed. They've made vows. They stick with it. They have oneness. They have community. And some of you might say, well, preacher, you think you know what you're talking about, but there's no guilt here, man. Man, I've lived with people and I've slept around. That's no problem for me. That's possible. Louis Smee's in a book called Shame and Grace notes there's two kinds of peoples. There's somebody who is perfect. So they feel no shame. There's nothing wrong for them to feel guilty about. And then there's the other second person. The other kind feels not shame and guilt, but it's because they live in total denial. So I don't know, you know, probably you got denial or perfection. I'm not sure where we all fit. 
But see, sometimes people violate God's intent for sexuality, and they don't experience much pain over it. I put, I put my tongue, man, I put my tongue out there, and I pulled it right back, it didn't hurt me, I didn't leave anything behind. Good for you. Do it again and again and see what happens. That could be a bad sign, because Romans 1, in the context of sexuality and some things, talks about that we can get a seared conscience, and we no longer feel the effects of guilt and sin. Some of you probably sitting there, you might be saying, well, okay, PT, so you're telling me I've got to make a choice between marriage and abstinence. Either I get married and commit to one person or abstain from sex altogether. Well, I'm not. God is. <laughs> and some of you are probably, well, you're kidding me. This century, this day, and this age, that is way too much. You must have some kind of uh, low testosterone, libidoly, you must be having a libido challenge, hormone-deprived pastor. <laughs> well, first, let's leave my testosterone and libido out of this. <laughs> Secondly, it is hard, but it's not too hard to do. People have done it. Millions of people have done it through centuries and through cultures. In this congregation, there are scores of people who live with Christ's help, prayer, and community, and they seek to live and honor Christ with their sexual lives as singles and as marrieds. So some of you may have a choice to make to be involved in a relationship and a behavior. You may be involved in this where you're violating God's design for your life and sexuality as a couple, maybe a single. I'm probably going to talk about pornography in a couple of weeks. It's time to honor Christ, honor yourself, and care for your soul and set yourself apart to Christ. Maybe you're with somebody that isn't here today and you need to have this crucial, courageous conversation with them to say, we need to change this because we're not honoring Christ. As a spiritual father, I challenge you to do that. Have the courage. Put your faith out there. Hear me. Every one of us in this room is broken, and that includes our sexuality. There's no room for smugness or self-righteousness on anyone's part. And this is what some of you need to know when I talk about some of those, that, that fact that your soul, it's got pieces. Christ can come and heal that. But the healing only starts when you begin to do right. And you repent of your sin and you say, Jesus, come. Paul gives us three reasons for fleeing sexual immorality. Number one, it's a sin against your body. Your body's been redeemed by Jesus, or it will be. Your body's going to be in heaven with you. It will be resurrected even as Jesus' is. Secondly, your body, he says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit that's living in you. This body is important. And what I do with it is important because God's spirit lives in here. This verse has been used to prohibit other vices that abuse the body. You know, excessive smoking, excessive drinking, using drugs, overeating, lack of exercise, excessive stress. It's not about that. But I will say this, I believe that you can make the application. Take care of this body. Because God created it for you. Take care of it. It's where he lives. 
Third thing is you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. He bought you with his blood. He came to this dirty earth, this messy place, and said, I'm going to give my life for these people that I love. This is so counterculture. We love to say, it's my life. I can do with it what I want. It's my body. I'll do with it what I want. No, it's not. Jesus says, Ed, I love you. I'm going to give you this pretty brown skin, dark hair, and you're just going to be a good-looking man, and I want you to take care of this body so you can work, and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. And then when you come to heaven, guess what? I'm going to fix it up, and it's going to be a 10. <laughs> and everybody goes, well, no, he's, he's, he's a 9-5 he's a now. Cry out loud. Some of you are thinking, oh, I was really cat. No, he's a 9-5, you know. But that's what Jesus is going to do. You know why? Because he bought your body with his blood. Here's the ultimate standard to test my behavior. Does what I do honor God? Does this behavior honor God? Does it show others how important God is in my life? That he's first and I belong to him. Are you doing that with your body, loved ones? Does it reveal God and show others how great he is? with what I do with my body, my mouth. I've told this before, but I think it's just a powerful word picture to close with. Some of you may be married here today and maybe you've had some, some sexual issues, dysfunction, whatever. In, in, in your marriage, it just, you know, it's, you, you would say, oh man, it's, it's not what we had hoped. And maybe it's because of stuff in the past. Maybe you're a single and you've just made some really bad decisions. And you feel this weight and this pain. See, for many, it's like walking along a beach. The tide, um, when the tide is out, what's left? A lot of times you walk on some beaches, it's kind of junk. You know, you'll see a license plate, garbage, dead fish. And stuff just in the ebb and flow of, of the tide coming in and out. And our life is kind of like that. And there could be some of that residual collateral stuff on the beach of your soul. And I'll tell you how to take care of that. Is learn to walk with Jesus and identify those things from your past and say, Lord, you know, I want a pristine beach on my soul. So when the tide comes in, it just, it's beautiful. And maybe you just need to go and say, Jesus, I want to... You know, I had these, and last year I had these five relationships compromised. It's like a dirty license plate. It's like a dead fish. It's like whatever. Identify it. Say, God, I'm going to give it to you. Forgive me. If you're single, do that. See yourself walking and doing that. If you're a married couple, do the same thing, except do it together. Say, well, we got this thing in our past. Honey, I'm, I probably haven't been as good a lover and soul connector as I could be because I, I carry this stuff with me. Don't go into the sordid past. Just acknowledge it before your spouse and say, be patient with me. Walk with me. Help me. Help me to clean up the beach of my past if it's affecting you now. And bring it before Jesus. You're not just a body. You're a body, a soul and the Spirit. 
is gone you're the one who calls me on you are the life you are the fight that's in my soul